This episode is brought to you by Cheesy Charlie's Western Bar and Petting Zoo. Are you looking for a locale to take your randy business clients? A place where young women in cutoffs and cowboy boots dance on the tables? A place with tequila shooters with an 80s vibe where your young John Travolta can find his Deborah Winger? But shoot, it's your night to take the kids. Well, partner, gather up those chicklets and take them to Cheesy Charlie's Western Bar and Petting Zoo, a true rootin' roarin' family establishment that caters at last to the whole family. Did I say Petting Zoo? I'm not talking bunnies and guinea pigs. In fact, a business they've trucked in nature from every style of industrial farm. Snake farms, alligator farms, fighting roosters from the chicken farms of Guadalajara, and a hungry cage puma from an illegal hunting lodge. Form memories of a lifetime as the little ones get close and personal to the man-killing stockyard animal kingdom, while rock country ballads roar in the background and go-go girls pour liquor on the bar and set it alight. And do you like bull riding? Brother, they got real half-wild Brahma bulls that'll kill you dead and run you hide up a tree. Give your kids an education in the sport of the ancient Minoans. Cheering love clowns, and Cheesy Charlie's got messed up rodeo clowns who risk life and limb after every longhorn dance, taunting 3,000 pounds of angry prime beef. Fact disclaimer, children under 10 require a parent or guardian's permission. Please be prepared to provide your blood type when you add your name to the schedule sheet. Celebrate your next birthday or kindred event at Cheesy Charlie's Western Bar and Petting Zoo. And thank you, Cheesy Charlie, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello. How are you? I am good. I am so good. Uh, it's been a while since we uh, have been heard. So yep. Somebody on Reddit was talking about something. He's like, yeah, I'm waiting for the Rereading Wolf guys to finish New Sun. And I was like, holy yeah. crap. <laughs> we're, we're not exactly doing the best job. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're falling down. And I and I am so anxious to get to the end. You know what? We need to get to, to feeling like the way you were when uh, Severian was stuck in the Citadel. And yeah, I know. Just, I just want to get him out of the <laughs> Citadel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I just want to get to the end of uh, of Claw. So yeah. yeah, boredom can be a good motivator. We've been on this for two years, Craig. We've I know. been on this for two years. I know. Which I, I knew was going to take a while. I'm not surprised, really. Because... Right. Every, every hero's quest has that moment where they have to fall in the cave of despair or almost give up or whatever. So, well, this is know. like the scene in uh, every wolf novel. I think there, every wolf novel has one of these where there's just this long period of people saying, what the, where are we going here? So yeah. like, for Fifth of Cerberus, it's the, the middle story for a lot of people. And uh, Claw the Conciliator is like that for me. And now... Uh, for this podcast so but we're back so we will get something done for you very shortly yes 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 well you ready to get started then yep um oh hey 
this nice interview on Geeks Galaxy. That was really That's cool. right. See, we weren't totally gone for the last three weeks. There, something else came out. It was just somebody else's podcast. Right. Geeks Guide to the Galaxy, episode 535, if yep. you haven't heard it. Or to make it sound even cooler, it is Wired's sci-fi Oh, yeah. It's yeah. cool. And we were on the front page for like three days. If you yeah, went was- to wired.com, there was a link to our story. There yeah, was, it looked like it was all about Wolf instead of us, but it was. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> it's really, it's all cool. well, whatever they're talking about, Wolf, they're really talking about us. So, <laughs> but it was fun. That was cool. I didn't no idea it was going to actually be like on the wired.com page. So, yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, we, let's dig in there. We got to get this, uh, get these comments through because we have, we have some pretty good ones. That, mm-hmm. Not as many people, but some really long, in-depth ones. Speaking of, um, one thing that did happen is we have gotten a few people email us and say that they are getting started with the show. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to say again, this is something that's actually, now that I think about it, not for anyone who's going to hear it for a while. <laughs> yeah, let me assure but you. <laughs> if you have comments about the old shows... We'll still take them. So, yeah. yeah so I yeah. just, as I was saying that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not necessarily whatever. Yeah. We said before we'd still take it. So, but yeah, yeah but it's cool to get that. They're hearing that and you will, you and y'all will be hearing uh, comments about the you know, early parts of the show, unless we've already answered it, in which case I, I usually try to just say, well, yeah, that gets answered in chapter. I, I can actually remember most of the places where we talk about it. Not always, but you, mostly. No, you have, you definitely have good, good recall for that. Yeah. I don't so much, but you do. <laughs> So, okay, well, on Facebook, Marcus Gavea has thoughts, lots and lots of thoughts. He says, I am struck in this chapter by how the events could be interpreted through multiple mythological lenses. He's speaking my language. I have been working my way through Wikipedia on South American folklore and mythology. Some I knew a bit about, most not. There are some good overlaps and promising connections in this chapter. For instance, the Chan Chan, and he has a little link to the Chan Chan in Wikipedia, turns out to be a weird bat-like sorcerer creature who drinks blood of the ill or sleeping people, and there are temptresses in the water and woods who try to lure you in, even specifically into the water to drown you, so perhaps we can see Severian falling into a pompous folktale here. At the same time, there's a heavy Greek and Latin vibe in this section. The Undine mentions uh, Sophisus by name, She is herself something like a siren or nymph, tempting the hero to follow her under the sea. And she is, as you noted, later explicitly named Juturna, the goddess of a Roman stream. I wonder if Wolf is deliberately overlaying these two traditions, keeping us shifting between the rules of fairy tales and myths of one culture and another. My attention is especially on this as we look forward to the Kamean, who has a classical Roman name, but who takes us back to Apupunchao, a South American deity. There's also uh, weird stories about South American witches, of course, one associated with the Quarai, which is uh, the uh, Tenegao who is a Moorish princess transformed into a lizard or salamander with a ruby for a head. The echoes of the Kamehian aren't tight enough for me to give a full account yet, but it's enough to make me wonder if there are others which do line up. And now 
he goes to part two. <laughs> I did a quick look at Michael Andre Drisi's notes and the Earth List and couldn't find anyone discussing the connection of Juturna to Virgil's Enid. The river goddess is there listed to be the sister of Turnus. You know, I, I actually think this was discussed in the Earth List, but it's deep. And I think that there is something there, but I think there's a lot of uh, earth to till here. So let's, Marcus, let's hear what you have to say. He says, the Italian hero whom the gods manipulate into playing Hector to Aeneas's Achilles. For those who haven't read the Aeneid, one structural key is that Virgil imitates Homer's Odyssey in the first six books, and then his Iliad in the second six. Sometimes the literary callbacks almost act like fate, forcing the characters into set rules. So Turnus is both literally and divinely forced to be Aeneas's nemesis. And Juno is also Jupiter's plan to make Aeneas founder of a Roman people. So she stirs up Juturna to the impossible task of defending her brother. In the final book of the Aeneid, Juturna comes up from her watery abode. She disguises herself as Turnus's chariot driver to defend her brother against his fated doom several times, only to be finally driven off by a fury before the boss-level showdown with Enos. He doesn't mention the chariot race with uh, Agia and Severian, but I immediately thought of that. The story has several resonances with Wolf's Undine. Juturna has become a goddess in the Aeneid's telling as recompense for Jupiter's taking her virginity. She is not mortal like her brother, but she saves his life at critical moments. She even gets Turnus' sword for him at a key moment. Turnus is being manipulated by forces beyond his control to play a particular role, and notably, Juturna is the sister of Turnus. Is this enough of a hint at a similar relationship that Wolf highlighted with that name in Earth of the New Sun? I think... I think it is, Marcus. Uh, incidentally, he says, I also stumbled on the long literary history of works about undines in Europe. They often involve the undine as a water spirit growing up with human parents who adopted her only for her to fall in love with a man. If he marries her and rejects her, he must die, which of course he does. A common element of the other water spirits who seek to threaten the life of the man and his would-be human wife through the bodies of waters. And you can find a trail of links through a page that he has given us called uh, in Wikipedia, Undyne Novella. Um, okay, I've got some some thoughts about this, especially about Turnus. Uh, you got any, you got anything to say, Craig? Anything? Anything at all? No, just, first of all, I do just want to emphasize that, yeah, the point about how there are multiple mythological and or fairy tale or folktale references going on at the same time with different things, I think that is absolutely right. And I think that I like that it's sort of pointing out ways that Wolf is kind of doing the same thing he does in the Brown book stories, but not in the Brown book, like mm -hmm. even maybe in the way that some of the characters or the, the creatures are formed are intentionally mixed up. So it's not just a sort of, Oh yeah, I recognize that is X it like what you really want to be doing is sort of trying to find multiple mm -hmm. different things at once. And I think that would be actually pretty cool. And, and so, yeah, I think that especially to put, sort of Roman things in South America, mm -hmm. it suggests you have to, right? Because it's yeah, not absolutely. just Rome and it's then a Roman thing in South America. So it's multiple things going on at once. So just to the, to the general approach. Yes. Right. <laughs> so I just want to say something about Turnus. I do think that the aspect of Turnus and the connection to Asia, 
with the uh, with the chariot race does have a lot. Does it? It does ring true for me for a lot of the things I believe about what is going on, even though I can't quite delineate it. As I mentioned, I want Asia for Severian's grandmother in a way. And I don't really know how it works, but it does. If that's true, then Juturna fits for uh, both Severian's mother and sister, just like Thecla. So, yeah, I like it. <laughs> but, um, you know, your mileage the, will vary. Yeah. So, but by the way, one thing he did say, he asked in the post too, is he's like, he's curious why we thought Wolf might be mixing those things up there. Um, the different different types of mythology in one thing. And I, I think the answer is for similar reasons is what the Brown book stories are mm-hmm. that I think it's trying to show how with massive amounts of time you lose specificity, but there may still be something in myth that gets transferred over time. And there may be, you know, treat it like a sort of narrative mythic platonic ideal or form that comes through all the different myths, but isn't dependent on just one myth. And the way that really kind of gets, the real payoff for that is the idea that Severian might be a Christ-like figure, that um, that's one thing that makes this somewhat non-Orthodox uh, in any way, is that it? I feel like in certain ways, parts of the book of the New Sun suggest that the actual historical Christ may not be as important as the sort of mythic place of Christ, or that might just be one sort of version of the story that gets told and repeated and has its importance many other ways. Maybe, I don't know, but... Um, Point is, I think that mixing up the myths is very important to Wolf to show that there is something common among different ones that may be almost lost to the point of total nonsense once you mix up all these different references, but that it still comes through over time. So that's what I think is going on. But that's a that's sort of that's a claim rather than an explanation, I think. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, I think Wolf personally, I think Wolf is taking all of these little things and he's putting them together uh, and they they they, they end up being like a soup (laughs) where you get, oh, wait, wait, I taste that flavor. I get Mm -hmm. that flavor. I get that. That's coming up. And I think that all of them to various extents can be. laid underneath the, the structure of this story. Wolf is relying on them for, oh, I'll use, I'm going to repurpose this old uh, pillar as a post here. I'm going to have use this arch here for part mm-hmm. of the ceiling. And I, yeah, I think that's what's going on. So I think you can look at different roles and detect something going on when, uh, you know, Thea is the uh, consort of uh, Hesiod, the, the embodiment, the, the Titan, who is the son and the father of the son. Uh, yeah, I think I think something real is going on there. I think something real is going on in in this story as well. But unfortunately, what happens is whatever you, you've got to come up with a story in your own mind that fits what's going on, and then you know. If you don't, if, if it doesn't fit with the mythology that you see that's underlying it, then you end up just, you know, casting it aside and saying, well, I guess he wasn't using that part. Yeah. But maybe he was. By the way, one other thing, when I first read this, um, I don't think I had my glasses on. And so I kept reading Turnus as Tumnus, like Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> like Mr. Tumnus. From, yeah. So I was like, I don't know what's going on here. I think that was uh, someone made that uh, joke on the Earth list when this was being discussed. Uh, oh, did they? Yeah, I think really think that's true. 
In fact, I, I may have had to, I may have initially thought it was, wait, wait, wait. Is that where C.S. Lewis got the name? And then, no, no, it's, you know, if, you, if, uh, if your scanner doesn't quite get Turnus right, it will come out as Tumnus anyway. Oh. So, let's <laughs> uh, see. Let's go to Reddit. So, Michael Andre Druisi so refers to the Wolf interview in Thrust Spring of 1983 that we referred to uh, in the last two episodes. Specifically, the the portion where, in discussing why the Undyne and the Megatherians and the Asadis are so interested in Severian, uh, this question was specifically framed in reference to Severian's conversation with the Undyne, as I said. And Wolf said it was due to, quote, his actions in an earlier time cycle. And, of course, as I do, I extrapolated on all that with the supposing that earlier time cycle might refer to a previous universe iteration of Severian's life. And Mantis says, just a minute there, Susie Q. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it's essentially <laughs> what, what he said. I hope to offer clarity with a different interpretation. Granted, it is difficult with the text providing so many technical terms for periods of time. I believe that Wolf's quote can be taken in a hard text way as, quote, Severian's future actions as a conciliator in the distant past of Typhon's era. The reading takes the Wolf's, quote, earlier time cycle as being primarily historical, the juncture point between the age of the monarch and the age of the autarch, but also iterational, in that there was no conciliator until Severian went back in time and became him. In short, it's all about the conciliator. Now, how much does the Undyne know? Well, just because she's a giant doesn't mean she's not a grifter. <laughs> so moving past... She's Megatherian, so, you know. Yeah. So moving past the woo-woo of water girls, looking down personal timelines and all, what if the Undyne is only tracking the claw in his possession? What if she sees he's got the dingus, which he didn't have when, you know, bunking with Baldy, a grifter guess would be that he might have been awarded the aegis of the conciliator, or he's just an adventurer who lucked into the hottest of hot rocks. And she sounds him out with talk of crowns and destiny and so on. Part of the siren song is nonsense, promise him anything, vague illusions, let him fill in the blanks, grifter patter. Hmm. Well, so, I mean, I see the, the <laughs> I don't like that on so many levels, Craig. What do you think? <laughs> I just feel like the way he talks about time cycles, like I get what he's saying. It's my, and this is just a gut feeling. My gut feeling is that that's a little bit too parsing of how one might talk about previous time cycle in an offhand interview. Mm. Like I, I just, I'd be more comfortable if Wolf was being sort of cagey with that Whereas in an interview, it just feels like he means, no, he really means another time cycle. Like, yeah. like uh, not not just previous time cycle in the way that I mean when Severian's time travel world goes. Like, I think it sounds, in the context there too, seems like he really is talking about a, a different repetition of Severian. Yeah. But uh, I, it's all, it's speculative. I mean, the logic of what he has after that, it makes sense. Um, I just don't know. I just don't know. You know, um, I do like the point that, they might be tracking the claw and not Severian. Um, I think that's interesting. Doesn't account though for their, how finds him when he's, you know, so young. 
Um, that's yeah. the part that she resurrects. Yeah, she, him. she definitely remembers uh, saving him. Right? Yeah, unless so, she's just faking that too. Right. I guess you could read everything she says is quite sinister right. in a quite sinister way. Right. But. but I do like the possibility that yeah, she's not really tracking Sev. She's really tracking the claw somehow. That's interesting. I I just don't think it's right. And it gets undercut when when we find out from the hierodules that they don't think the claw is anything really special on its own. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't know. You look, I expected him to say, oh, no, no, look, it's not, it's not a universe cycle. It's basically just a time cycle that Severian is overriding, which kind of falls in with his own theory of the first Severian anyway. Let's see. What else? He, undersea cities. Uh, Mantis says the ruins of the undersea cities, as you suggest, is a neat inversion of the Atlantis trope. It also has a straight pedigree from Buck Rogers. The implication is Ooh. that the undersea cities required at least a little support from land, meaning they were experimental, semi-dependent. To put it in the mode of the 1970s, funding for Jacques Cousteau's sub-aquatic habitat program ran out, and the Superman limped along for as many generations before finally dying out. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I'd like to think they went on for thousands of years and yeah. underneath there. but That just makes me think I need to really like either rewatch or reread some of the original Buck Rogers stuff. Cause I had the toys and I always loved Twiggy, but I can't remember really anything about Buck Rogers. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, the Buck Rogers in the 25th century is probably the least uh, dependent on the, on the comic strips. And, and but I did watch uh, it growing up. So, but, I, oh yeah, but you definitely <laughs> check out the Buster Crab movies. So cool. Okay. He also wants to talk about, Thou spark of blood, which is our um, uh, our, our patron special uh, bonus episode that comes at the end of every episode, which you can listen into simply by becoming a patron for really not much money at all. For less than the cup of cost of a cup of coffee, you can keep two podcasters going. <laughs> uh, but uh, Mantis says, after twenty years of pondering. He uh, has a brand new theory for the origin of the poem, Thou Spark of Blood. It's detailed, but it's really cool. And it's in the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit for the 228 episode. And the link will be in the show notes. Let's see what else. Oh, oh, speaking of old episodes, uh, Raccoon Dispenser on Reddit uh, chimed Mm -hmm. in on the Jalenta chapter with Joan Gordon and Diana Lambert. He says, this episode hooked me on the podcast. Great discussion from the guests to draw out the tragedy of Jolenta. I would absolutely love to read a story from her point of view. Great point about Marilyn Monroe as inspiration too. Even Jolenta's origin story has echoes of classic Hollywood. She's discovered waiting tables and now she's in everything to the that the great Talos produces, which is only one thing. But she is actually still waiting to be discovered. She thinks that she's going to get discovered when the after the play and uh, doesn't happen. Also, uh, via email. It was a good month for email, actually. We got some, yeah, some good stuff, some especially, really, really, really good one. especially from people who are new and are sending us stuff um, from some of the early episodes again. Yeah, um, uh, Michael Andre Dreesey is kind of uh, digging into the Christmas end. Uh, he had other ideas beyond what we had talked about. He says, hey, guys, stumbled onto this. Dickens wrote, oh, by the way, we're covering a Dickens uh, pastiche 
at mm-hmm. the uh, in the patron section at the end yep. of this. So you know, get your two dollars, your five dollars in, and you can uh, you can listen to us gab on about the, that uncollected story about vampires. <laughs> but anyway, so Michael says Dickens wrote a Christmas novella, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, which begins with a ghost giving the man the option to forget all his grief, rather like the offer at the end of the wolf story. And Dickens' story has an unnamed child going along in a mysterious way, plus a family shop that has been various failures in the past. He says, I haven't read it yet, but here's the link. And, um, so yeah, I have to check that one out, Craig. That does sound hopeful. Yeah, I saw it when he sent it and completely forgot to go read the story, <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. which is one I should know because it's one of his Christmas stories. But I don't, I don't know that one. And Craig, we've got corrections. Hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. William Ainsley, who uh, I I do remember from the Earth List, and is now following us. This is really going to be exciting. It's nice to have, uh, you know, an old name, but also someone who has been, you know, puzzling over this story for a long time, just like you and I. Yeah. But alas, what does he come bringing us? Corrections, which <laughs> to be fair is one of our favorite things. The, the He says, we made a couple errors in chapter two of Shadow of the Torturer. So first he corrects us on our mix up with uh, discussing the, flowers of the, the purple roses of the necropolis with the uh, Ninophars that it is of course the purple roses that Severian thinks of as you know representing life because of all the wildlife he sees in the necropolis whereas the Ninophars he associates with death uh, because he uh, he almost died <laughs> entered them but uh, Williams says I'm spelling this out despite the fact that you had corrected this error, because I don't think you fully corrected it. As part of your muddle, you said, or at least seemed to me to be saying, that Severian regarded thoughts of his own death, the death of someone who had been kind to him, or the death of the sun, which he associated with the Ninophars, as positive images. And I don't think that's the case, since he hated and feared the Ninophars for really causing his death. He must have hated and fearing die, feared dying as well. Yeah, I, you know, it's been so long, Craig. I don't know whether he's right or wrong, but <laughs> at least here we've been corrected if we were. Yeah. yeah. And the other error, he, this is really good because uh, William says, regarding the second error, I described it as a possible error in the subject line of this email, despite the fact that I am certain it is actually is one because either none of your listeners pointed it out to you, which I find unlikely, or because if they did, you didn't agree with them enough to add it to the errata or even discuss it. If so, you won't agree with me either. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> okay, so what he's talking about is our debate over whether Severian is looking at a mummified corpse or looking at perhaps a, uh, a brass effigy on top of the, mm. uh, of the casket. Is that, yeah. am I describing that right, Craig? I think that's right, yep. And, um, I really felt like it was a mummified corpse for a long time. And now because of some other uh, texts that come up in claw, I'm, 
I doubt, beginning to doubt that. I, I, yeah. I see Craig's and uh, Mantis's point in saying that, no, no, it's he's not looking at a mummified course. He's looking at a an image in a brass or perhaps, you know, like one of those little effigies that they have carved out. I see the point. I see the point. Um, <laughs> it's still, you know, that whole thing at, laid out at length. Um, it, it doesn't seem right, but it, it so, but it could possibly be that it's just the way he phrased it that threw me and made me misunderstand the situation. But I do find it more credible than I did before, and probably correct to say that no, no, it was uh, it was some sort of image on the brass bronze, right? Yeah. I think that's right. So yes, 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 William, you are correct that I was wrong. And no one, no, and honestly, no one did uh, try to correct us on this until much later. Uh, Mantis corrected us on this. So Matt Livingston on email has a theory, a curiositus earthus. Curiositas earthus. He says, I'll attempt to keep this brief. Not done. You did not keep it brief, Matt, but that's okay. Uh, he says, obligatory, long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm really digging your podcast, and I think you guys work great as a duo. Oh, thank you. That's thank really you, gratifying. You. Yeah. His So his theory is about the uh, book one, uh, Shadow of the Torturer, chapter five, the, the picture cleaner. Since you spent a long time talking about the painting on the moon, at one point, the picture cleaner refers to a planet in the background as, quote, your Earth. He says, that's because it's the Earth Severian originally came from, as in he or his ancestors settled on this distant planet that is not Earth. He wasn't implying ownership. He was implying ancestry or origin. He says, here are my some points that back that up. Severian is said to be taller than average because gravity was a bit weaker than on our Earth. You have mentioned several times biblical symbols of saints or referred to Severian as Christ-like. Christ came down to Earth from heaven. In Severian's case, he came down to Earth from the literal heavens, a.k.a. space, sky, etc. Also, his crest that he chose had a flying ship on it. Maybe he chose it because it resembled a ship or he that he knew or was familiar with. The photo image itself isn't a currently known image. The astronaut doesn't resemble any current astronaut because it's a photo from our future, Severian's past. At no point does he say it's an American flag, just a starched banner. It would also explain why the moon is barren, because it's not our moon. It's the moon of another planet. When he talks about touching the moon as the dawn of mankind, you compared it to man leaving the caves for the first time. In the instance of this quote, I think he was saying mankind didn't begin until they left the solar system. As for why the photo was taken on the moon and not on the planet itself, maybe it was a tradition hearkening back to the original moon landing that happened in real life, Apollo 11. Taking a small leap now, he meets Valeria she says she is the last of her sons and the last of her daughters. Wolf put that in there as a giant clue or misdirect or something. The point is he wanted us to focus on the fact that she was alone because she actually wasn't. She came from the same planet as Severian. They aren't twins as in bro and sister, but 
twins, as in they are both the last survivors of the people who lived on that planet. That is why he gets so fixated on her. They are the, both the last survivors and the last line of survivors taking a larger leap. He's going to take an even larger leap. The astronaut in the picture is actually Severian from another timeline past life. It's acknowledged that time is a little slippery. I feel like alternate timelines have been mentioned in your podcast and why he seems to recognize it so immediately. Continuing to take big leaps, the ship the tortures occupy is the one that brought Severian or his ancestors back to Earth. Again, acknowledging a time is a little slippery. Jonas was on a ship that crashed. The Torturer's Guild ship no longer flew. He seems to recognize Severian because he was on the same ship as Severian when it crashed, as was Valeria or an ancestor of Valeria, which is why he was so infatuated with her. She resembled someone he used to know. Jonas seemed like he assumed Severian should have some knowledge of ships because he had flown in one with him before. I don't have any real evidence other than it sounds cool. <laughs> Ties some things together and might help explain how Severian wound up there in the first place and goes back in the end to marry Valeria. It's mentioned that Jonas had been around for a while and other instances of hallways of time and people, things out of time. So it wouldn't be that big a stretch that the ship is older than it should be. Anyway, it's a theory that's been in my head for about a week, and I made a few more connections typing it out. Apologies, <laughs> it's a bit rambling or jumpy. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast a ton. Thank you, Matt Livingston. Yep, absolutely. And I do like the way you connected up the different people as being possibly connected to the past. That was interesting. But no, I still feel like it's uh, it, like the whole sort of gist of that moment is supposed to be i think the the sort of recognition of something from us that becomes there now it is you know it, bold to say like yeah that's what you're supposed to get on the first reading but the more you think about it then you find out other levels maybe but it it also just there would be so much else that would have to change about his backstory and yeah that that that's that's another one where you end up with sort of this whole other backstory that never really comes up anywhere else but i mean again yeah congratulations on you know on boldness i appreciate that <laughs> but oh yeah well i, I confess I, i'm not personally convinced um i think it kind of spins out into unwieldy territory who am i to talk but um you know it's a it's a curiosity surface, right? Always happy to take them because you never know what you're going to find. But it does honestly. It it about explains as much of the Valeria connection as any other. <laughs> I, look, I'd like to see. No one's got an explanation for Valeria. I don't think why Severian suddenly decides to go back at the end. Why his his feelings towards Valeria seem to just kind of grow out of nowhere it, it has, seems to have something to do with i think it has something to do with uh you know getting the autark's memories but mm -hmm. i can't say why that would matter <laughs> so i don't know it just seems to fit um and i guess you know same thing here so thanks thanks matt also Grant Canterbury says, I recently discovered your podcast and have been catching up with your timeline. Just finished the Baldander segment. And he, brings up, he brings up the fact that we have 
we we talked about uh, Talos representing a fox mask from a higher reality uh, being a Pinocchio reference. So we did talk about that, I think, in the next episode, and he reminded us too. But we just wanted to give you a shout out that we are paying attention when people give us notes about old episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. We, really pre- we do it for you. Yeah, nobody can read the whole thing as they as they go. And and this is you know this podcast is is us growing as we go. Yeah, who knows? Like once we finish Citadel, who knows what it's going to be like when we come up with some totally different reading of the thing, and then somebody will start the thing and on, on chapter two say you guys missed the whole point which blah 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 and we'll be like yes we figured that out four years later <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes the only it only took us about 15 chapters to get there <laughs> but we did so, uh, but he also says that he has noted that the fox in pinocchio has dr Talos's exact showman style and patter down cold and he loves swinging around and gesturing with his cane that that's that's absolutely true And we do have new patrons since last time, so please, if you enjoy the show and feel like we need more encouragement to get things out more often, consider following us on Patreon, and it's patreon.com slash rereadingwolf, where you can join up for $2 or $5 or more at your discretion. Even the $2 level gets you access to all the extra content up there. The higher levels get you the master tags and access to our Slack channel, as well as little gifts throughout the year. So since last time, we have new journeymen. Cole Batty, Ken Remen, and Lori Ampuha. And I do hope I'm pronouncing things correctly. We also have two new masters, Austin Beeman, who, by the way, we got to know in Chicago at Worldcon, and it was awesome. And he's got a whole lot of great uh, story review stuff that I really hope you should check out, and I should go post some links somewhere. And also, Thomas Kim. Can't stop me because I'm Kim. Thank you all so much for your help and support. And remember that your one extra thing that we've started lately is that if you are a patron, even at the $2 or $5 level, you get access to our extra talk about an uncollected Gene Wolf short story that we will always tag on to the end of the episode on Patreon. Chapter 29, The Herdsman. Okay. It's the morning after Severian's encounter with the Undyne, uh, less than a month since the elevation and just over two weeks since he left the Madison Tower. I, I'm guessing that it's like 28 days since the elevation ceremony. That and, makes sense. And that's beginning to make more and more sense uh, as, I, uh, as, as I've been reading carefully in, to, to the end of this volume. Oh, just think of all that's happened since chapter 14 of Shadow of the Torturer. Since mm-hmm. he left. I mean, it's crazy. And that, that's with glossing over four days or so after leaving Bolas's camp. So now four full days since Severian and Jonas started running from the Notchul. And, you know, Craig, this is, a, this is an interesting chapter. Severian, or apparently Severian, is going to perform some more miracles, one after another, uh, probably more than any point until we get to Earth of the New Sun. 
And that's when Severian has already brought the new sun and become, as he puts it, a marionette yeah. of the new sun. So we'll see if they are miracles or if Sev's just un misunderstanding something. That's what well, we, we shall see. Well, that's a good <laughs> point. I, I guess we have to keep an open mind. But because this chapter is nestled between the scene with the Undyne and the encounter with the witches, most readers, I think, just barely remember it. I mean, that's my sense anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even before this time when I was reading, I was like, oh, yeah, the weird little hut and mm -hmm. the cows and the lions and the whatever. Yeah, so. right. And in addition, this timeline, Craig, is really weird. It seems impossible for Severian and the women to see as much as they see and do as much as they do in one day. And yet it definitely feels like all this is supposed to happen in one day. Now, Severian, Dorcas, and Jolenta are walking north through the fields of sugarcane. The cane is taller than their heads. They don't meet anyone. Jolenta is being supported by Severian and Dorcas on either side. Jolenta isn't getting worse, but you know she isn't getting stronger either. And Severian is really starting to feel his hunger and also how tired he is. Remember, he didn't really sleep last night and now he's dragging Jolenta and the sun is hot. True, you know, the sun is dimming, but Severian is acclimatized to it. So it's beating down on him. And Jolenta herself doesn't always look like herself. He says that if he looks at her in the corner of his eye, he looks like, quote, someone else, a woman I recalled but could not identify. <laughs> yeah, so she's losing whatever is there. And it's things like this that make me think that what Talis did was as much sort of hypnotism and confidence stuff or something psychological as well as whatever cosmetic things. He talks about that later, but I mean, yeah. Well, even Severian, I'm jumping ahead. He says, he says that when he's, when he can see inside of her, he can see that uh, Talos has done much more to her than even the witches had implied. So yeah, she's, uh, she's fallen apart. But anyway, so when Severian looks directly at Jolenta, he says, this impression, which was always slight, vanished altogether. So, I don't know. I don't know. That's a really, it, it does feel like maybe it's ki some kind of a glamour that is on her that literally changes what you see versus what she physically looks like. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's cool ambiguity to it. it. Whether or not it actually is that, I just... When, that's one thing I've always loved about this part is how complicated he makes it seem. Like yeah. How right. complicated beauty actually is. Like, it's not like just he gave her, you know, big thighs and big boobs. Like, <laughs> yeah. no, 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 there's all kinds of stuff going on it's, here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got layers. It's got yeah. layers to her beauty. Well done. Yeah. Well done, Talos, I guess. I think most readers cue to Jolenta being the waitress in Chapter 16 of Shadow. But I guess some don't, and this foreshadowing is for those readers alone. <laughs> so <laughs> Severian says, my shoulder grew raw under the baldric. Oh, oh a baldric, I, I think we addressed this word yep, before. A baldric is the strap that's attached to the sword chain, mm -hmm. right? It's designed like a belt, so you use it to carry the sword on your hip. Like he says, this is the only time he's ever felt like Terminus Est was a burden. So it's the right. first time, you know, it's physically there, but he also, it's the only time he kind of resented having to carry yeah. big heavy sword around with him, which is totally not the, what, you know, the image you think of a Conan type guy, right? With <laughs> his big magic sword or whatever, but no. So here we actually have Severian admitting even that he's feeling a little bit beaten down. 
Well, yeah. Well, you drag a woman around who's Mm -hmm. more copper than she is regular woman. Yeah. But it's such a cool thing to say, too, because it sort of it really emphasizes how much this has affected him. Like Severian doesn't come out and say something like, you know, I was super shaken up by the Undine and by what's happening to Jolenta. He doesn't say that. But the fact that he mentions this about the sword to me makes it seem very obvious, you know, like Mm -hmm. Severian's really taking a hit here. And this is where for one of the first times where I think he's really starting to question what's going on and be like, you know, the the world is bigger and darker than I thought maybe it Mm -hmm. was going to be and not really knowing what to do, but just keep walking. Yeah, he cut some cane stalks with Terminus S and they chew it to get the sugary juice. So it rehydrates as it gives them calories and energy. But they have to stop for Jolenta to hold her cane because otherwise, you know, they're supporting with both her arms. So it's slow going. And because, maybe because she's lost so much blood, she's constantly thirsty. And she still has some of her beauty. Yeah, in an, in an odd way. So he, he says, it was strange to see those long legs so beautifully molded with their slender ankles and ripe thighs so useless. So, kind of a cool sentence. I mean, you're just yeah. thinking about like the like wolf and prose. That's a cool sentence. I mean, that is it, well written uh, description yep. of yep. of admiring legs, right? All that stuff, so beautifully molded, so useless. Let people take note who think that Wolf is only a breast man. <laughs> yeah, he can he can admire legs yeah. too. But no, totally. It's like just that one sentence, like pulling it out and taking a look at it. It's like parallel construction. You got the two so phrases mm-hmm. there, and they each go in opposite directions. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I like it a lot. So, so they walk this way all day. Well, I say all day. Uh, finally, they get to the end of the cane fields. Obviously, it's not all day. It's like I said, the time is weird here. They reach the southern edge of the true Pampa, the sea of grass, right? The word Pampa comes from the native Amazonian word for ground or land or earth, right? Pampa. Uh, among all the other signals in this story, that it's taking place actually or elusively in the southern half of South America, especially in Argentina. The, the Mate, the maned wolf, or Jorge Luis Borges, his master old. This is possibly the most overt. Yeah, because right? he just uses the word. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It also reminds me a little bit, I don't think it's intentional at all, but it totally reminds me of the beginning of Hyperion when the people by Dan Simmons, but, but when the people show up on the planet and like the boat that's going to take them to their storytelling thing comes and it's a boat that is literally blown on a sea of grass. And mm. it's just such a cool image that's stuck. In oh, that is cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, reminds me of that has probably no intentional anything to do with either way, but <laughs> I like it. South of the Amazon Valley forest is this massive treeless plain called the Pampa or the Pampas. It lies mostly in Argentina. It is to that region what the Great Plains are to the central United States. Severian literally calls it, like we said, a sea of grass, which is also what the Great Plains are often called. But here we are in future Argentina, either actually or elusively. And when I say elusively, I, maybe it is possible that it's not a literal location that Wolf carefully plotted using a map of South America, but maybe he built a world using multiple signifiers of South America and 
Argentina. But in this case, where we'd expect the Uruguay River to empty into the east side of the continent, it empties into the west because it really isn't expected to be the same place. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, there's Lake Diaturna to the north, and it sounds a lot like Lake Titicaca, but it maybe it isn't really Lake Titicaca. I'm just leaving that open. Mm-hmm. No, I haven't been able to identify our own world location of the house absolute or the, you know, the, the, the town Quiesco, which I would have expected to be able to do, the place where Hathor and Buzak arrived at. But since I haven't been able to derive any meaning from the name Quiesco, I'm hopeful that if someone can identify the Our World analog for the town, it might open up why Wolf bothered to give that town a name, because Severian himself never goes there. Yeah. As I said before, seems to me that what Severian describes in this chapter is several days travel. He, he does not specifically say how many days, but I, I don't see how else they'd encounter so many trees, he mentions, nor the number of cattle herds if it were only a single day or even, you know, a couple days. Yeah. It, it, it takes place of the way the narrative works over several days, then that would mean that it must be a very inhospitable culture here in the Commonwealth because Severian does have money, but they don't stop at a ranch house or a farmhouse to spend the night mm-hmm. or even to pay them to take you know care of Jolenta until she regained her health. Given her condition, it can't have done her any good to have traveled all day, certainly not many days. And yet, during this chapter, she doesn't get worse or better, uh, suggesting it all happened in one day, even though it makes no sense to me. So <laughs> anyway, they're traveling north. And Severian and company arrive at the southern end of the Pampas. There are a few trees here still, very widely scattered. If you're uh, standing at one, you'll maybe see you know two or three in the distance. And wherever there are trees, there is some animal of a predator sort that's tied to it with raw hide straps, its front legs spread out like arms that are crucifixion. And most of them are the, quote, spotted tigers common in that part of the country, which I, Greg, I take to mean jaguars. Maybe, yeah. So, or smilodons, right? He's a sword-toothed smilodons. But also there are some smilodons, right? Saber-toothed tigers, although they are not classified with tigers or any other felines. They're classified in the order of Feliforma, along with mongooses, meerkats, and yes, hyenas, which were called alzabo by some. And there are some atroxes, too. Severian says, with hair like a man's. And what Severian seems to mean by this is that the Atroxes have manes. An Atrox, Panteris Atrox, is the American lion. In this case, we should imagine them looking like African lions. And indeed, mm-hmm. there are there was a consensus in modern times that the American lion was a subspecies of the African lion. So they're often titled Pantheris Leo Atrox. And this might reasonably have been in the reference that Wolf was consulting in the late 70s. However, Recent DNA analysis has suggested that they were genetically identical to Eurasian cave lions. Although American ones grew bigger, and that's something because Eurasian cave lions were considered the largest lions that ever lived. Uh, They went extinct around 12,000 years ago, maybe due to human hunting. Who knows? Cave lions just makes me think of cave trolls and 
I don't know that I've ever heard the name, the term cave lion before. I'm not sure, but oh uh, yeah, interesting. Very cool. I'm learning. So, so there's a. I think there's a cave leopard. There's a cave bear. Um, there's a couple of cave things, I, which I, I think is just paleontologists getting on a kick because they always find the bones in caves. Anyway, for our purposes, imagine a very big African lion with yeah. big bushy manes. So, but it's the, it's why they're there. It's why they did it. And we'll, yeah, we should say what he says, but then it's another, it's one of those moments where I wonder, you know, cause Severian is giving the reason for this strange thing happening and, but it's, it's a guess on his part, right? Like he yeah. assumes he knows what he's talking about, but, but it's very cruel. I think that's the main thing we're supposed to gather mm-hmm. here, even for you know, dangerous yeah. predators. Most of these cat-like predators are just desiccated carcasses. He says hardly more than bones. But some there are alive. And the purpose of this practice, as you said, is to ward off other Smilodons, jaguars, and Atroxes by the sound of their cries. And I guess they would roar, whine, or... uh, uh, you know, other predators would just treat that as a sound to stay away. Essentially, yeah. you know, remember the Planet of the Apes when they would find the wardings blocking mm-hmm. their path with eight bones and skulls. Uh, that's yep. you know, they serve that purpose. They're yeah. they're, they're they're scarecrows. Cat, they're yeah. cat repellent. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're scarecrows. They're right. but, but for they're scare cats, I guess is what they would be. But yeah, and it it's just a moment because it's such a weird and in some ways a really like pregnant image because it's not exactly crucifixion, but with all the other Christ imagery that mm-hmm. goes around with the conciliator, yeah, no, you can't mention it's, that it shows up. And, but then the reason it happens is something very, very different from, you know, what you would think of crucifixion, right? Cause mm-hmm. crucifixion is not, you know, it's, that's getting ready for, it's a horrible thing. It's a representation of sin, but it's also getting ready for salvation here. It's just like you said, it's cruelty. Um, right. So whether even if it was done to, you know, keep the other predators away from the fields, it's just such a harsh thing to do. And it's just it it's the one image that did stick with me. Like I said, I'd kind of forgotten about this one, but I do always remember the cats tied to the trees because mm-hmm. I always like I always keep thinking like, well, what were they tied with their backs up or were they tied be, with their yeah. arms around it or like what? How is it just how uncomfortable that's that what would be like. for a cat? Yeah. yeah, just horrible. But yeah. But, you know, the black cattle themselves are dangerous. Severian yep. says that they were more dangerous to humans than the big cats. And I should say that the African Cape buffalo is also considered more dangerous than lions or, you know, other big uh, predators in Africa, for, even for to hunt. Hmm. They're, they're, they're cagey, they're malicious, they're vengeful, they're, you know, they're full of spite, they curse, they're all kinds of things. They... They stay up late. There is, there's bad, they're bad news. That reminds me if Mark, if my friend Mark ever, not Mark, I mean, but another Mark that I have ever listens to this, he tells this hilarious story about being chased by a bull on a <laughs> hike that he and a friend were, another friend of mine were taking and I didn't go on. And I missed this, this grand story about being chased by a bull on a long Boy Scout hike. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so these black cattle are just highly aggressive. They'll charge at anyone or anything that gets close to them. And Severian doesn't say how they figured this out. They're nearsighted, I guess. It's, it's like herds of rhinoceroses. But 
They had to give every herd they encountered a wide berth and stay downwind of them because I guess they charge if they just smelled you. Mm -hmm. And remember, they're dragging Jalinto along. So, you know, this is pretty hard. So when they co would come to near a herd, Severian would let Dorcas support Jalinta, and Severian would go and walk out between the women and the cattle. And once he did this and he was attacked and he jumped aside and chopped the bull's head off, and then they uh, stopped and roasted some meat. Right, and, yeah. You know, totally cool bull fighting, I guess, move. <laughs> that, that's... But once again, this is kind of hard to imagine mm -hmm. in a, if, if they're just, if all this walk is taking a single day. Yeah. I mean, where... Just stop and they're going to yeah. they're going to they, they're going to still have all these events before the sun goes down at the herdsman's house. So. Yeah. 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 The, the next time he was charged like this, he remembered that when he drew the claw, it stopped the attack of the man apes. And now I think this is stupid. <laughs> Severian, <laughs> Severian was told by Jonas that the man apes were as human as he was. You know, they just had rather distinctive features like long, glowing body yeah. hair. That, and it was supposed to be, we talked about this, right? About how it was more right. evolution. It was like, they're still you. Right, it's just exactly. a different evolved thing. Yeah. Just a little bit of a difference, just like, and, and, and uh, Severian's different too. But Severian thinks, you know, who knows? And sure enough, it works. The bull just trots right over to him and nuzzles his hand. So if you're counting, he tried to use it twice to heal Jolenta, no dice. But as for turning a ferocious bull into Disney's Ferdinand, no problem. And now he'll let Jolenta ride on his back. And Dorcas supports her a little as they walk, with Severia walking beside its head, holding the glowing claw in front of it. The glowing claw. Okay. So then they pass a Smilodon tied to a tree. It's nearly the last tree that they're going to see in the journey. And Severian who only three chapters ago left Jalenta to be murdered by Talos and Baldanders, quote, seemed to feel his eyes on his back, yellow eyes as large as a pigeon's eggs. And Severian, who is also severely dehydrated, I, I guess, feels empathy for this animal. So he gives the claw to Dorcas. Now it's going to be revealed in a bit that the claw is no longer actually necessary to keep the bull docile. It's been tamed, maybe permanently tamed. I don't know. However, Severian thinks the claw is doing the work, you know, keeping him tamed. So he, and he doesn't say it, that it goes dim or anything when he lets go of it, or does it? I mean, does the claw still glow in Dorcas's hand? If yes, you know, what does it mean? <laughs> if, yeah. if we believe that Severian himself is subconsciously making it glow. So, Severian goes and he cuts the Smilodon down from the tree. He does this expecting it's going to attack him. Again, very un-Severian-like behavior. But it doesn't because it just falls to the ground too weak to get up. And Severian doesn't have any water, so he just walks away. But yeah, so there's a lot going on in this couple little moments. So Yes. Um, I'll let you go first. <laughs> well, I want to talk about why we're getting this scene to the story. Why? Okay, cool, this, cool. The scene, the scene does not demonstrate the power of the claw the the way it did with the bull, right? He right, and in fact, claw. no, He's he not doesn't. Him. He, and but he also doesn't even try to use the claw. No, he right? doesn't. That's right. That's right. what kind of gets me is like, why did he not try to use the claw on the suffering animal? Like he used the claw with the bull that yes, he wanted was to use it on, on ball danders, right? right? He wanted, yep. he wants to use it on everyone. And yep. yeah, 
but yeah, but he has this moment of, like you say, like empathy for the creature, but he doesn't try to heal it. Now, maybe you could say he was afraid the bull was going to go rampage if he took the claw mm-hmm. away or something. Maybe. Um, but it's also just weird that, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a way to look at that as a good thing, that Severian was having a moment of really feeling for something else's suffering for the first time or not the first time, but, but with what's going on with Jalenta, yes, yeah. he's starting to, to, you know, feel, feel others pain or whatever. And so that's why he goes up without the claw at the same yeah. time. It's like, uh, but, but you got <laughs> this thing. Why wouldn't you at least try it on this poor suffering? Well, narratively, this scene is weird because it, yeah. what you might think is, oh, well, you know, the Smilodon is going to become Severian's loyal friend. You know, just like Triskly, and you know he'll battle he'll cat. have now he'll have yeah he'll have a battle cat he'll be what is it is that um he man who has the battle cat or yep, yeah he man's battle cat yeah but that doesn't happen no uh, we don't even know if the you know, the Spilodon survived this is just Severian acting with uncharacteristic human empathy for another suffering creature so again you know. What narratively, what is the purpose of this scene? What's going on? What led to this transformation? And Craig, I'd like to propose one. Cool. So Varian pulls out the claw and it turns a hostile bull into a tame and gentle creature. Now, if you believe that the claw is only our Severian dipping into his unknown new sun powers, then what I'm going to pr- propose is kind of paradoxical. Isn't it reasonable? given the placement of this event in the chapter, that it is Severian himself who is being transformed by the power of the claw, whatever power that comes from. He's been walking along with the glowing claw, leading the gentle beast, and it's having this analogous effect on him. And that is why we get this event that otherwise doesn't seem to move the story along, doesn't seem to reveal anything, or, or alter the story in any way. I kind of like that. I like the idea that, yeah, this is the claw doing a miracle, just a subtle one, right? It's working right. on the inside rather than the outside. I I kind of buy something about that. I mean, it also, it it, you know, it still works because the claw also even if it does represent what Severian already is, you've also got all the things that have just happened here where he's, you know, he sees Jolenta suffering. He's gone through some hard experiences of getting back with Dorcas, but realizing she's not perfectly happy. There's all kinds of stuff that's going on. That's sort of forcing him to, to get more of that sympathy, but maybe the claw is also a kind of, yeah. And call it a magic way that kind of reemphasizes those things. Maybe. I mean, it is, he is handling the claw right bef- right while yeah. he's, you know, getting ready to go check on the, the poor Smilodon. So, yeah, yeah I don't, I kind of, I kind of like that. No, it's, I mean, honestly, I mean, I mean, that's the only thing I've got. It, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, I think the scene is a little bit weird. It seems uncon- uncharacteristically unnecessary. Right. It, it, I also like it that it really makes the claw into a, 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 magic item of a different sort right Mm -hmm. it's not just like a healing spell thing um it also does really potentially change people which you know it's got those multiple levels going on at once and i like that and it seems like that's what it has to be if it's really going to be meaningful as is so central as it ultimately is so 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of an amazing device. You know, the the, the Haradules said, "Well, it's you know, there's nothing in the claw. I can't do all the things you're saying." But that's pretty that's pretty effective if that's yeah. the case. Symbols making us, but in a different yeah. way. You know? Yeah, it's just a really again a cool sentence. It says he fell to the ground, too weak to stand, and I who had no water to give him could only walk away. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a cool moment. It's like, I wish I could have helped him more, but I couldn't really, you know, not, not in the situation we are. He's already got Jalenta to take care of. Can't take care yeah. of a dangerous beast too. <laughs> couldn't really give him water. Couldn't really help. And it's like, there's a sadness in that, right? Like he yeah. wanted to do more, but he couldn't. And that's not, that's not a kind of experience. Severian usually. That is not the <clears throat> Severian we know. That's right. What have you done with Severian? And I was thinking like the big thing he does do is have a little bit of mercy towards Thecla in the beginning, right? But here, this is different because yeah. I thought when he first was going over there, he's going to put the poor thing out of its misery. Mm -hmm. He doesn't though. He doesn't kill it. Maybe that would be kinder. I don't know. But it's, it is in pretty stark contrast to Thecla that he, he frees it here instead of just finding a way to make it stop suffering. And then, then right. maybe there's something different. There's something important in that distinction. But yeah. Anyway, I mean, anyway. Yeah. He, he actually acts. He doesn't just kind of wave his, his claw around. He actually, you know, steps yeah. in and, 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 uh, yeah. Now we're a little after noon. I, does this mean it's taking place in more than a single day or is now all this happened in the morning? I mean, that's, yeah, I think that's good. I don't know, it's, it seems hard for me to get my get my mind right. I I agree that this is actually happening in one day, but I it come on, <laughs> all this happened in one day. He he killed and butchered a bull, and then the, and they sat by a fire and roasted it, and then now they're on, and now and now, uh, Craig, I just don't buy it. So, uh, like I said, so it's little afternoon. Um, they've stopped and roasted a bull. They've done everything else, and now it's maybe six hours at most. But now it's a little past noon. But just past noon, Severian sees some kind of carrion bird, a vulture or crow or something, circling in the sky above. And it seems that Severian thinks that they can smell, you know, the dead or dying being. And we're getting a memory from the tower. He says that once or twice, when the journeymen were, quote, very busy in the examination room, very busy, the apprentices had to go outside and throw rocks at birds perched on the curtain wall where the break opened into the necropolis. And they did this because they didn't want carrion birds, which supposedly could smell death, perching around the tower and giving the whole citadel a bad reputation. Like, <laughs> people might think they kill people here. <laughs> so anyway, the... The vultures are circling, and Severian records something that I think is interesting for me. It ties what just happened with the Smilodon. So he says, The thought that Jalenta might die was repugnant to me, and I would have given much for a bow so that I might perhaps pick the bird out of the air, but I had nothing of the kind and could only wish. <laughs> and this is Severian, who again, not so many days ago, left uh, Jalenta with Talos and Baldanders to be beaten and robbed, rather than just, you know, hold her in place for a few minutes. Soon, two small birds join the other one, and he can identify these as uh, Cathartidae, 
a cathartid is a new world vulture. Specifically, it identifies one of seven species of vultures native to North and South America. Because it identifies them by their bright head color, which I guess that these are king vultures or some analogous species. Of course, it could be a California condor, but you know, it's the king vulture that has that really gorgeous head color. And I'm not just putting this on uh, for reasons I can't verbalize. I do know my vultures. And because the original bird is so much larger, a wingspan three times larger, he knows that this is the mountain teratornis, which Severian mentioned in the last chapter of Shadow of the Torturer. Again, a teratornis is a breed of American carrion bird that went extinct about 10,000 years ago. It had a wingspan of four meters, 14 feet, and Severian's mountain teratornis might be much bigger. Probably is. It, it's said to attack climbers, raking their faces with poisoned talons and striking them with the elbows of its great pinions until they fall to their deaths. It's just basically vindictive. If the smaller vultures got too close to the Teratornis, they would attack them. And finally, here we go again, Severian jokingly makes a gesture for the birds to join them. And when he does this, they comply. He says, all three dove, and I brandished my sword at them and gestured no more. <laughs> Oops. Totally so I, feels like, what's the meme of old man yells at cloud or something? Yeah. <laughs> it's very in like just waving his sword at the sky. Yeah, so I guess he had to ward them off with the sword, but after that, he, he stopped goofing around by inviting birds to come, uh, come down to join them. Uh, finally, it's sunset, or as Severian puts it, when the western horizon had climbed nearly to the sun, they came upon a, quote, low house, scarcely more than a hut, built of turf. Get to the herd. All right, so one day. I agree it's one day, but... There's so much going on, it doesn't seem possible. And that's the way, really, that's kind of kind of the way time works, in this, particularly in this book. It can be, it seems like sometimes Wolf is deliberately trying to mess with our sense of, of time. So here, so we can follow this. Um, if you just read this chapter straight, you're likely to assume, you know, they start in the morning, right? Then at noon, he sees a Teratornis, and uh, and he's, he's already, you know, Roasted a bull, he's already free to smile on. He's come across many trees, even though he's told us that, you know, when you're staying at one, you're just going to see a, one or two in the in the far distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, he's doing all this, carrying Jolinta around. So now we come to the herdsman of the title of this chapter. Yep. So he says, a wiry man in leather leggings sat on a bench before it, drinking mate and pretending to watch the colors in the clouds. In truth, he must have seen us long before we saw him, for he was small and brown and blended well with this small brown home while we had been silhouetted against the sky. <laughs> so the herdman has, you know, a pewter straw that he's using to drink his mate, and Severian tucks away the claw, even though, as far as he knows, the bull will suddenly go crazy without it in sight. But it does nothing, of course, and it just keeps walking along as before. And they get to the little sod house, and Severian helps them down. And apparently by this time, you know, both uh, Dorcas and Jolenta are riding. And Severian just waves his open hand to the fields and the bull trots off. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that pewter straw either. 
I'm like, it's. I think that's. Uh, I think. Well, they they drink out of these like clay straws. Yeah. In, in South America, I know that. Maybe that, so, okay. Okay, that that yeah. could well be it. Otherwise, I was like, it just seems like an odd little luxury in the midst of <laughs> otherwise what seems like really abject poverty. But yeah, his yeah his grandfather gave him that straw. So it's. <laughs> and let's see. The 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 herdsman says, that was an ox. Now it's easy to pass by the significance of this scene. I, I feel like most readers do because this chapter is kind of weird. It's also not absolutely clear whether Severian, you know, has been himself has been changed permanently by the events mm-hmm. in this chapter. And as I said before, it, it, it sits between Severian's encounter with the Undying and Severian's encounter with the witches. So it, I feel like it just gets passed over because you know that's you know what are you going to do with it? But I think this is pretty big. Uh, the bull was definitely not an ox. An ox in animal husbandry is a castrated bull used as a draft animal. And we'll see as the conversation progresses that the herdsman knows it's a bull. He's just saying, I know you have a big secret here, but I, I'll play along. But you know that I know what's going on here, and I know you know it. And so he <laughs> wants to make sure that he understands, which he doesn't yet, which is that this group have tamed a pampa bull and because someone who can do that is not to be trifled with. So the herdsman says, that's an ox in Severian first. And then Dorcas just go along with this. They, they don't contradict him. He explains that they borrowed it to carry Jolenta. And he says, uh, is he yours? I, I hope you wouldn't mind. We, we did him no <laughs> harm. <laughs> and the herdsman says, no, no. I only asked because when I first saw you, I thought he was a destrier. My eyes are not as good as they once were, but as you say, it was an ox. You see what it is to become old. I would have licked the blade of this knife and pointed it to the sun to swear that I saw something between the ox's legs. But if I were not such a fool, I would know that no one can ride the bulls of the pampas. The red panther does it, but then he holds on with his claws, and sometimes he dies even so. No doubt it was an udder the ox inherited from his mother. I knew her, and she had one. I told you, I don't know nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm not sure what a red panther is, uh, unless it's a puma or something. Maybe it's an Atrox, an American lion. I don't know. Severian says uh, that he's a city slicker and doesn't know anything about cattle. And maybe he doesn't really know, you know what an ox is. Uh, maybe he doesn't want to explain. I don't know. Okay. He goes on. He says, oh, I'm a man more ignorant than you. Everyone around here but me is one ignorant eclectic. You know these people they call eclectics? They don't know anything. How can a man learn with neighbors like that? Okay, an eclectic. Uh, we get no definition for this word in this volume, but Severian explains it in sort of lictor. Yes, yeah, so forms sort of the lictor. These men were eclectics, the descendants of settlers from the south who had mixed their blood with that of the squat, dark autochthons, adopted certain of their customs, and mingled these with still others acquired from the amphitryons, hopefully that's pronounced correctly, mm-hmm. farther north, and those in some instances of even less known peoples, traders and parochial races. Yeah, uh, that explanation requires further explanations. Uh, yeah. Autochthons are, of course, ostensibly the native people of this continent. I, I think it is reasonable to imagine them as the descendants of Amazonian tribes, but mm-hmm. it is said somewhere that Nessus was originally founded as a autochthon village. Yeah, and we get a lot of talk about them, too, right. in 
the beginning of Sword with Syriaca and some others. Yeah, so I think it's probably more accurate to say that Atakthans are descendants of the present uh, city people of Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. The people of Nessus and the Citadel are, they're from later stock. They're colonists from somewhere else. Uh, further south are, you know, Roche's people with blonde hair and freckles. So, you know, Scandinavia, maybe. The Eclectics, the Eclectics are a mixed culture from the colonists of Nessus and further south and the Atakthans. But there is also some mixture with the uh, Amphitryons, uh, an Amphitryon. Phytrian was a figure of Greek myth, but frankly, I think Lexicon Earthus has it right. The name means roughly antagonist to either side. And probably since they are from further north, where the Commonwealth and the Ischians borders are disputed, I think Lexicon Earthus has it right in suggesting that these are the people of that region who are unaligned with either side, at least reliably. And they could be equally said, I suppose, to be as friendly or hostile to either side. Hmm. Yeah. And the uh, eclectic culture is further mingled with other groups that are less populous and unnamed. A parochial race would be smaller groups with distinct cultures and traders from abroad. That is to say, they are true mongrels, these eclectics. And their status as mongols, taking a little bit from this group, a little bit from from that is otherwise an exception, it uh, seems, in Severian's world, at least from Severian's perspective. Nessus is cosmopolitan, but it's cosmopolitan in a samey kind of way. The other groups have more def definite cultures. Yeah, sort of like the old thing about the difference between a salad and a melting pot, right? <laughs> it's yeah, like exactly. Eclectics are more the, the, or the Commonwealth, it seems more like the salad where, yeah, you do have all these different races and things living together, but it's, it still seems pretty clear for the most part, you know, who's right. an armager, who's a, right, a whatever. Exactly. Um, but eclectics are the, that's, that's the miscegenation going on. Yeah. I guess. Just, uh, <laughs> Someone's got to stop it. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so Lexicon Earthus compares the eclectics to the mestizos of colonial South mm -hmm. America. But, yeah. but it seems they are just deliberately more complicated than that, since yeah. mestizos occupied a middle ground between two distinct peoples, the Spanish and the native South Americans. But the eclectics... This, they really the, seem like a hodgepodge. Yeah, they're like a central melange between all these different cultures. Some, some of them are rivals, and some have nothing to do with each other. Now... The herdsman calls his neighbors eclectics, and he calls a guy that we're about to meet, who is his son, an eclectic. And I think the herdsman is, you know, he's being ironic here. He, yeah, right? He's an eclectic as well. Right, and, right. And the tone of that thing that he says, you know, how can you learn anything with neighbors like that? It's kind of like. Uh, yeah, all these ignorant yeah, eclectics, yeah. right? Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, well, I mean, you've heard undoubtedly, you know, because someone who is a redneck so talk about all, yeah, the you know, those ig ignorant rednecks, you know, yeah. or hillbillies, yeah. all those ignorant hillbillies. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I think that's definitely the the tone of what he says when he's talking about. Yeah. It's just yeah. a way of owning a derisive term, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Dorcas asks him to let them come in and let Jalenta lie down because she thinks she's dying. The old man says, you should ask this man here. He can lead an ox. I almost said a bull like a dog. And Dorcas replies, but he can't help her. Only you can. And there it is. <laughs> so the herdsman now knows that it was Severian who tamed the bull, right? The herdsman says, 
I'm very sorry for your friend who I can see must have been a lovely woman once. But though I've been sitting here cracking jokes with you, I have a friend of my own. And right now he's lying inside. You're afraid your friend is dying. I know mine is. And I'd like to let him go with no one to bother him. And Dorcas says, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. We won't bother him. Maybe we can even help him. Yeah, but that whole thing makes the fact that if he is kind of joking and making fun of himself and talking about, you know, Oxygen City people, it's so weird that it's even stranger when there's somebody dying mm-hmm. that he knows right yeah, inside. It's just, right. it's this very surreal moment. Yeah, so. the, the herdsman gives, you know, them the, the once over. And then he looks at Dorcas. And he says, you are strange people. What do I know? No more than one of those ignorant eclectics. Come in then, but be quiet and remember you're my guests. So he lets them in. It's a very tit when he you know, called it a low house. The door is so low that Severian has to stoop to enter. And the hut has only one room. It's dark and it smells like smoke. The floor is dirt. There is a man lying on a pallet in front of the fire whose name is Manahan. He's much younger than the herdsman and he's taller. In a bit, he's going to reveal himself as the herdsman's son. But Severian doesn't know that yet. And he and the herdsman have, you know, both brown skin, but the guy on the pallet is pale. And Severian says there was, quote, no blood beneath the pigment. His cheeks and forehead might have been smeared with dirt. And they spread Dorcas's, quote, ragged blanket, of which uh, there's been no reference to it up till now, on the ground slash floor and puts Jalinta down on it. And her eyes open for a bit, but there's no person behind them. And Severian writes that, quote, their once clear green had faded like shoddy cloth left in the sun. So yeah, even the green of her eyes is fading. And the herdsman whispers, she won't last longer than that ignorant, eclectic Manahan. Maybe not as long. Saint Manahan or Mayan is he's mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse one. All we know about him is that he, quote, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that is uh, Herod Antipas, who was a friend of Caligula's. And there's quite a lot of stories about him, but but anyway, he was, he was in some friendly way connected with Herod Antipas, and he was an elder in the church of Antioch, that is, you know, present-day Syria, which was, after, you know, most of the Christians became refugees from Jerusalem, it was the most important early first-century church. And it was from there that Paul and Barnabas were sent on their first missionary journey, and St. Manahan was one of the elders that sent him. How he died is not known, but he's mentioned in several martyrologies, and it's assumed that he was martyred for his faith in Antioch. But I guess maybe the reason he, he, it's appropriate is because he's an eclectic, right? Uh, this uh, Manahan was a Christian, and he was also a friend of uh, mm-hmm. Herod. Yeah. That seems like the, the closest thing. For it, yeah. So Dorcas asks for water for Jolenta, and the, the herdsman leads to get it from a rain barrel behind the house. So, yeah, it's all happening one day. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I don't like it, but I can't get around it. <laughs> as soon as the herdsman leaves, Severian pulls out the claw. He says, This time it flashed with such searing. Cyanius? Yeah, Cyanius <laughs> flame that I feared it would penetrate the walls. 
the claw is really busy now. Cyaneus means uh, intense blue, an intense blue flame. The young guy on the pallet, quote, breathed deeply, then released his breath with a sigh. And Severian puts the claw away. They seem to think that it's helped the man because Dorcas notes that it did nothing for Jolenta. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. It's right there. She's right there. It does nothing for her. Yeah. And uh, Severian says, well, you know, maybe she got, if she got some water, <laughs> she's lost a lot of blood. When Dorcas smooths her hair with her hand, a lot of it sticks to her hand. Her hair is just falling right out in clumps. And uh, Dorcas reveals something about her. She's always been sick, she says. And when she'd get sick, Talos gave her something that made her better for a time. She says she used to be very demanding, and now he has had his revenge. Mm. Yeah, which that also sounds like, you know, a junkie, right? Yeah. Like it's like she's sick, but, it, you know, he gave her something to make her better for a while. Exactly. Like, that just sounds like heroin yeah. <laughs> or drugs or whatever right. she needs her shit. yeah she needs her it, 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 it's fixed. exactly that yeah she needs her fix yeah. every day so varian can't believe that talos meant for something this awful to happen to her he doesn't really know talos and dorcas agrees she doesn't know him either which just shows how dense that you know they can both be but i'm really surprised at dorcas she usually has a a good bead on people talos knew what was going to happen and when they left her, uh, I think Ta Jolenta seems to have known as well. Talos and Baldanders didn't care, but Dorcas figures that they could still catch up with Talos and Baldanders because they'll stop to perform and spy out the land. Again, the fact that Dorcas thinks they could catch up with them suggests that they really have been traveling only one day. So Severian is perplexed by Dorcas' statement that the two of them would spy out the land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she says, at least it always seemed to me that they wandered as much to discover what passed in the world as to get money. And once Dr. Tallis as much as admitted that to me, though I never learned just what they were looking for. Yeah, this is an interesting detail, right? It, I hadn't you know, really paid a lot of attention to it before. Are they working as spies for Vodalus? Tallis definitely has Vodalus's sword cane, I think. Yeah, I don't I, my gut says no, but um, I don't know quite what uh, to make of that. Because even if they are, it still seems like they're they're still just doing their own thing. Mm. Um, and so I wonder if that's just a way for Wolf through Dorcas to kind of suggest, you know, those two are they're they're much more intentional than we thought. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's something else going on and it could just be as simple as that. But other, but as far as like an actual spy, that was to me, another one of those, you know, where the character says something that's half right. Uh -huh. It's like, they're not really spying. They're just trying to make sure they're okay. See if anything is going on in the world that they need to know mm. about something like that. But I, I'm not, yeah, I, it's, it's so ambiguous here. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean that she says that they are looking for something could mm -hmm. imply something in particular or maybe and talus does seem to know a lot about stuff like the the sword cane at the end always made me think not just that he was working for Vodalus, but it was some kind of sign that like he had always been in on whatever manipulation was going on behind the scenes he's like you know here's, mm. a, here's a prop yeah if, if you believe that severian is being manipulated that's really a this is confirmation for you yeah 
because what the sword king kind of is is it's like here's a prop from the very beginning right and and i have it yeah you know it's like you're something that from the beginning this whole thing was <laughs> set up organized somehow yeah i don't know they're in lake diaturna i don't know i mean maybe they work for hildegrin that's also a possibility but that whole idea that you know that they were looking for something is kind of what could they be looking for I, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, if we believe Odalist, then it doesn't seem that they are spies for, for either him or Hildegrin. I wonder if, are they looking for Megatherians, just like the Megatherians were kind of following him? I don't know. Maybe that was... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Volus did tell Severian that Hildegrin, quote, thought it sufficiently unusual to see a torturer so far from the Citadel and talking about, you know, Vodalus as to make it worthwhile to have you watch, though he had a notion that you had saved me that night. Unfortunately, the watchers lost you at the wall. That could be Talos if they're, if they're um, spies, but then they, I don't know. Would he have been surprised about that? It does, uh, here's the thing. That does sound sort of like what Talos's excuse for bringing Severian into his troop was. Hmm. Sounds kind of similar. So, yeah, I don't know. You know. What are they looking for? Hierodules? I don't know. So Dorcas supposes that they won't rush back to Lake Diaturna because, you know, money wasn't the only thing they were looking for, which is, again, surprising. Now that they have the money they need, you know, she might be wrong that they have an alternative motivation uh, besides getting back to Lake Diaturna and rebuilding their house. Yeah. But, you know, what if they weren't? Any Do you have any idea what they'll be on the watch for between here and their house. I think they're rushing to get back as quickly as they can and get the place rebuilt. Yeah. Unless it has something to do with hoping to see the Hyraduels mm-hmm. or I don't know, but otherwise, no, I don't know. Cause they, they are so much doing their own thing. Yeah. You know? So the herdsman uh, returns with water in a gourd. They move Jalenta to a sitting position, and Dorcas gives her something to drink, and she can barely drink at all. Most of it just dribbles down her front, soaking, as Severian writes, the tattered shift. Remember, it was shredded when she was beaten by Talos. And the herdsman gets, you know, more water, and then they try again, and this time she does actually swallow it. Severian starts thinking, maybe we can take her to Talos. So he asks the herdsman if he knows where Lake diaturna is and you know the herdsman just points northwest which fits for like uh diaturna to be titicaca if you assume the place is the guile and nessus is uh, is in the south american map so i suppose you know they're here on the near the uruguay river and buenos aires so he asks if severian intends to go there and severian nods and the herdsman says you must pass through a bad place then Perhaps through many bad places, but surely through the stone town. First reference to the stone town. He calls it a bad place. I suppose the witches maybe are always there. I don't know. I, I don't know why it's developed such a bad reputation for the herdsmen. Yes, yeah, it seems like it. He describes it kind of like a sort of Bermuda Triangle yeah, a little yeah. bit. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, very nasty if it's a city. Yeah, and the man says, there is a city, yes, but no people. The ignorant eclectics who live near there believe that no matter which way a man goes, the stone town moves itself to wait in his path. That's not so, but the stone town bends the way a man's mount walks, so he finds it before him when he thinks he'll go around it. 
Do you understand? I think you do not. <laughs> the variant discerns that it's, you know, very like the uh, botanic gardens. And so we can understand how it's like the botanic gardens. There's the path through the jungle garden. It's leading you. The question is always, what would happen if you got off the path? Would you become part of the scenery? Or would you inevitably find your way back to the path? Perhaps the variant is, you know, only reflecting on how traffic is controlled by multiple invisible architectures to direct yeah. your paths. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it just, it could also just be, you know, magic <laughs> or there's <laughs> something about time travel, right. About how right. the, you know, the path is just always going to lead you to this one way right. in the end. So, but yeah, the man keeps going. He says, but if you're going North and West, you must pass through the stone town anyway. It will not even have to bend the way you walk. Some find nothing there, but the fallen walls. I've heard that some find treasures, some come back with fresh stories and some do not come back. Neither of these women are virgins, I think. Yes, Varian shakes his head because, of course, he knows this. <laughs> right, which is also an odd thing to add there. And he says, that as well. It's they who most often do not return. Oh, wow. Oh, well, once again, witches, though, they're kind of interested in, in virgins, right? Just to replenish their numbers. Yeah. And also, though, so the, the legends go, I don't know if it's actually true, but supposedly a lot of the human sacrifices in the Incas were had to be virgins. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Like, again, I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it's certainly a legend that sprung up around it. Hmm. So I, I was wondering, could it be that there is some time travel that'll go on and maybe not even under the witch's control, but just because of the paths and the, the way that things work there. Yeah. Virgins end up being taken as a sacrifice from back then. I don't know. It's, it's suggestive, but I don't know. Yeah, we we know far too little about witches, yeah. <laughs> considering the central role they have in this book. Yeah. I do like the idea, though, that it's not that, you know, virgins are being sacrificed, but that it is the witches, either yeah. protecting people or, or, they're or taking them recruiting or them or, like or whatever. Yeah. 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 Oh, he thinks of the botanic gardens. And remember, there is a the Kamehian has a, has a little cave yep. there in the Garden of Endless Sleep. It's weird. Oh, and I should also mention that Asia, I've often said, has a lot of strong witch illusions around her. I now have come to believe that she's an autochthon from the north. So there's certainly an opportunity for her to have encountered the stone town. So the herdsman suggests that they pass through the stone town during the day, and he gives instructions for moving northwest without the path tricking you into walking in circles. He says, Try to pass through by day with the sun over the right shoulder by morning and later uh, in the left eye. And he says that if you end up still there at night, don't stop and don't take detours. And in that case, since you'll have no sun to guide you, he says, quote, keep the stars of, I'll take a shot at it, Ihua. Ihuayvulu? Ihuayvulu. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say before you when they first grow bright. So Ihuayvulu is a dragon-like creature in Amazonian folklore. Fire-breathing, seven heads, man-eating. Uh, it inhabits volcanic craters. In this case, however, it seems to be a northern constellation that he can follow as a guide. And given that, it is surely the constellation Draco, which today circles closely around the North Pole Star. 
Polaris. It could be Lacerta, the lizard, or maybe even Hydras, but I don't think so, because the point is that this circumpolar uh, constellation, he's using it to ensure that he travels north. Now, suppose, this seems unlikely to me, but suppose he's as far north already as uh, Annunciation Paraguay. This means that he's at the same latitude south of the equator as Miami, Florida is north. I don't know if you can see the southern pole stars from Miami, but I guess it's possible. You can see the stars that are in the southern circumpolar region hmm. in certain times of the year. So maybe, you know, that's a miss. Maybe it's not. I'm not positive if any of the stars of Draco can be actually seen in the horizon at night from where Severian is. But I do think that Wolf, who, having read Hamlet's Mill, is attuned to figures of mythology being often based on stars and constellations, would have considered the idea that Ihua Vulu could have initially been Draco, since it inhabits volcanic craters and the horizon in myth is often represented as fire or water or hills. So you have a dragon living in a volcanic crater half below the horizon, seven heads, some seven stars, I guess. And I should stipulate that I have no idea what most of the Amazonian Central American names are for these constellations. <laughs> but I think Wolf gave Draco the name Ahiafulu to one, signal again that this where this story is taking place, either actually or elusively. And two, because it's mythology fits the format for Draco seen in the area of the equator as Wolf understood the connection between myth and cosmology, which is self-evident in the title of the novel, The Book of the New Sun. And in that, he eventually cites Hamlet's Bill directly in The Book of the Short Sun. So that's quite a rant about a very small reference to the text. <laughs> it, it's been a while since you, you got to love <laughs> that's, 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 that's fine. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> probably necessary even given, given all the talk we've had about it. So. Right. So back to the story. Just as Severian is about to ask for more directions, the dying man wakes up, sits up, screw you, Jolenta, and his blanket <laughs> falls off of him, and there's a bloody bandage on his chest. He catches sight of Severian with a start and stares at him and shouts something, but he says it so quickly in a dialect that Severian is unfamiliar with, so Severian can't understand it. But the herdsman seems to worry that Severian will understand and he puts his knife to Severian's throat. Maybe he's just told the, Sever the herdsman to kill Severian, but even though he has his knife to Severian's throat, he tries to calm the injured man down. He, he won't hurt you! I don't believe he knows who you are! Uh, it's described as a, quote, crooked, two-edged knife. And, yeah. he's, and so uh, when he yells that, I, I don't think he knows who you are. The, my question with that was, who was he saying that to? Like, he, was he saying, I don't believe Severian knows who the other guy is, or I don't believe the other guy knows who Severian is? I think he's saying, he's trying to calm the injured man down. So he's, I think he's saying that, you know, Severian doesn't know who you are, which suggests that he's, he's an escapee from Thrax. Or something, yeah, because that's why the, with the Thrax thing that he mentions in a second, that's what I was thinking too, but I did think the reference was a little weird there but yeah so that's a whole new aspect to uh -huh. this dude and this little situation that we have no context for yet so and 
he knows that there is going to be a new Lictor. I guess he knows from his gathers from his cloak. Maybe that he is the Lictor. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. maybe. But he kind of has a a sense of this scene where uh, Jesus is casting out a demon, and the demon identifies him as the Messiah. Mm. Yeah, mm. interesting. Okay. He says, uh, but the guy says, I, I tell you, Father, he's a new lictor of Thrax. They've sent for one, and the Clavagers say he's coming. Kill him. He'll kill all who, of them who haven't died already. That suggests that, yeah, he's got friends in the, you know, in the in the tunnels or in the caves at Thrax. Yeah. Oddly enough, that's kind of going to happen when he floods a bunch of stuff. But we're not, we don't worry about that. <laughs> he does do it but, anyway. Um, yeah, but for different reasons, maybe unintentional. I mean, sort of. We'll see. But, but yeah, so this guy, yeah, he's escaped. We have no idea what his crime is um, or what he's done or why, why he's afraid of getting caught. Right. I mean, so. Right. Well, I don't think we've defined Clavager yet. Is a prison guard. Yeah. So he has heard from the prison guards that he is coming. So he is, does recognize yeah. him. He doesn't need supernatural powers to know who he is. And it's also just going back to the thing that the torturers here are just known as just executioners right. yeah. and killers. So even though he thinks he's going to be an right, administrator right, right. or something to everybody else, it's just, nope, yeah, you just that's kill the most, Yeah, that's the one we all care about. And there, perhaps that's how you know, Manahan was injured, escaping, I guess. Apparently, Thrax is a long way off. So the question is... How did he get out here? Uh, you know, Severians were certainly very surprised. Especially since he probably would have had to go through the stone right. town, right? Is that is that right? So, yeah, it's, okay. well, yeah. not necessarily, maybe. Um, the, yeah, if you know how to get around it. Who knows? How I was trying to think from the, the map. Is the is the map, is Thrax generally north and west? We don't really know. He's it's north. It's right. north someplace. Okay. And he, but he wants he he wanted to know how to get to Lake Titicaca, which is northwest. Maybe these men are spies for Bodilus. Uh, anyway, Severian has a knife to his throat, and he wants to ask him these questions and probably others. And, you know, that's very Severian. So, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm making finger quotes, Dorcas hits the herdsman on the side of the head with a water gourd. And the gourds aren't heavy or hard, but Severian, being Severian, says that it was a futile woman's blow that did nothing more than smash the gourd and cause little pain. And the, the herdsman slashes at her, equally futile, and Severian grabs him by the arm, breaks it. The guy drops the knife, and Severian stomps on it and breaks it. Manahan tries to get up, but you know he's not healed enough yet, and Dorcas pushes him down. Well, now they're both disabled, and the herdsman says, we'll all starve, because his arm is broken. And But Severian says, you care for your son, and soon he will be well enough to care for you. And then he asked what Manahan did that they're on the run from the law. And apparently they are out here because they're hiding from the authorities in Thrax, like we said. But they won't tell him. Is, do you think this is anything we're supposed to figure out? Is there a mystery here? Right now, I don't know. But I do wonder when we get to the Thrax sections. I've never read those looking for anything connected to this. So. That's what mm. you do. Where's the hearing about the prison break? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's why we need an elector. <laughs> <laughs> now, as for the crooked knife that the herdsman used, uh, we're going to get details about that in the next volume. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He says, many of these eclectics favor knives that are curved, or as they're sometimes called, bent, having two relatively straight sections with an elbow a little toward the point. 
The shape is said to make it easier to pierce the heart by stabbing beneath the breastbone. The blades are stiffened with a central rib, are sharpened on both sides, and are kept very sharp. There's no guard, and their halves are commonly of bone. I've described these knives in detail because they're as characteristic of the region as anything can be said to be, and because it's from them that Thrax takes another of its names, the City of Crooked Knives. So the the knife is a signet fire of the herdsman's ethnicity, right? Yeah, and also something about this passage just makes me think of peace when he's talking about his little pocket knife, and and it's like how precious and how significant it is. yeah, so I don't know if that's just a, is that a wolfism thing that he had a knife that was special to him and so he's got to talk about him? I don't know, but but it's right. also not, he doesn't do that for every knife. We get all that about the sword, about term assessed and about yeah. a couple other little things, but yeah. So right. something here about these knives. And the only other thing I didn't know is like it, just the emphasis on the curve. Is that supposed to make it seem like, oh, it's it's... The eclectics are like the Moorish exotic others or something. I don't I don't know. Thrax seems to have a lot of cool names. <laughs> the city of windowless rooms, the city mm-hmm. of crooked knives. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And crooked knives, yeah. Well, back to the events at hand. So Varian sets the herdsman's arm bone back in place, so, which you can bet was as painful as breaking it. And then he puts a splint onto it. He and Dorcas sleep outside, and they tell Manahan and Dad that he'll kill them if they open the door or if they harm Jolenta, who they leave inside by the fire. Then in the morning, while those two are both asleep, Silverian touches the herdsman's broken arm with the claw. He doesn't say whether it glowed or, or seemed to have any any effect. So we don't know if it was ineffectual in the way it was for Jolenta. No, but it is another moment here where Severian has reacted in the way he was trained and then obviously felt somewhat bad about it right because he helps him heal he's or, or he's just merciful right or just merciful yeah but it's it's definitely just a different way of but it's it's severian being a little bit more attentive yeah i mean he would have he would have well we saw how he treated the guys when they're taking him to Vodalus, right i mean that's that's severian yeah right yeah just chopping heads off yeah but not here no it was just something he had to do in the moment yeah, I, I, you know, I gotta say, I kind of think maybe the claw did glow here, if I had to choose, because in the past he's always said when the claw was inert. But as in the case with the manape arm, remember that manape, the the guy whose arm Severian surely healed. I, I think he healed him, but for some reason Severian says nothing about it. My point is that Severian has not in every case said when the claw seemed to do something. So I prefer to say that. Hmm. Something did happen. Not far from the hut, tied up is a destrier. And Severian didn't say whether the destrier belonged to Manahan and his father. I I wonder if property ownership is a sort of a fuzzy concept in these parts. Severian gets on him and uses it to round up another destrier for Dorcas and Jolinta to ride. And get this, Craig, during the night, the sod will have turned green and the turf has come back to life. Yep. Yep. So we do get some actual green connected to rebirth here. But uh, but also because Severian's been sleeping outside. Isn't that it? 
It's because of the, the claw? I think so. And or it's that when he healed Manahan, it also healed something else that was around there. It didn't heal yeah. Jolenta, but it did. It did heal Jolenta. Everything gets yeah. the attention of Jolenta. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. I, I think this is an interesting and mysterious chapter. It's not flashy, but it deserves as much note as water turning to wine at the beginning of this mm -hmm. volume. Uh, the claw seems to work on everyone except Jolenta. That's worth noting. And finally, uh, Severian's soul just feels like it's been changed yeah. in this chapter in a way that for me is exceptional. Yeah. We've seen other examples of that, but this is the first time where the chapter seems kind of like constantly hitting that beat over and over again. Yeah. Right, right. I think for a while that he does become a kinder person and maybe some of it sticks. And maybe that explains what happened with Syriaca and with the sick children in Thrax. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if he was getting, getting better and then he had to face the war and Citadel. So I don't know. That, yeah. Well, I mean, he does, he, he works as the lictor of Thrax. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a bad guy for his job, but maybe he's a good yeah. guy in his spare time. Anyway, I'd like to know what y'all think. Uh, reach out to us with your ideas and other comments, your thoughts, your corrections, complaints. Bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, email, or the Patreon site, the Master Patron Slack channel. You can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on the social medias, wherever it is that you tell people what for. And most importantly, tell your Wolf Reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you and heal any animals that are tied to trees. Set them free. Yeah, please do yes. that. Please do that. I, and stop tying animals to trees. <laughs> All the sounds of the earth are like music. The sounds of the earth are like music. The breeze is as busy. It don't miss a tree. And a little old weeping willow is laughing at me. She said, oh, what a beautiful morning. Yes, what a wonderful day. ready yep so read the chapter title yep. and we'll, my uh, i'm sorry but my i my my tongue is all tied today no worries a baldric you're just talking to china so you know yeah that's true that's you right weren't speaking to, chinese i guess i, I had no no but i have to talk in an accent when i'm doing it so <laughs> that's how you're able to be understood
by people in foreign countries who just kind of speak in a lousy accent as though it's them, and then they can understand everything. Yeah, and then it's saying. all better. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. That's a, that's that, it's called American foreign language. Right. It's yeah. A, uh, did I lose you, James? Did I lose you? Oh no. Hold on, crap. Oh, okay. We, I think did we say that Severian was the one who just said that? Because that's uh, the herdsman. No, no, no. So, what's that? Which part? The the. Uh, I'm, I'm a man more you. ignorant than you. No, yeah, no, that's, no. That's that's the okay. okay. The herdsman. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I I feel like I ought to have something else. I do have more, but I was going through and I was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm belaboring the point here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what headspace I was in when I wrote all this down. Like we could even stick it in the bloopers at the end. Just yeah. Or yeah. A little um, thing about, hey, so uh, if you wanted to maybe nominate us for the Hugo. Yeah. We can, we here, this will be our little plug. That'll, this will show up in the bloopers. But yeah, we're, just in case you're listening, we're thinking that since a lot of people went to Worldcon last year, this might be a year where we could see if we could get enough nominations yeah. just to show up on the Hugo yeah. ballot. Yeah, we could just be Hugo. Now, I, I don't think we're going to win. But no. did you know it only takes like 39 nominations yep. to become it turns a nominee? Like the fifth or sixth, or I think he, Austin Beeman was telling us that like the, the fifth person, the lowest one, only took like a handful of nominations to actually make it on there. So if any of you wonderful people are super <laughs> fans who, especially those who went to Worldcon or bought the, right. the membership, that's all you have to have to nominate. But we'll, we'll send out more details later, but uh, it might be fun to think about. Yeah, I think, look, I, I don't feel embarrassed about about pitching that i know the other there's, there's a lot of podcasts they're great i love them they win they're great I, I i get why they win but i think we work a lot harder at crafting these episodes so that they're just a lot of fun to listen to as fun as we know how to make it and uh, so, yeah, that's why it's been more than two weeks lately since we put them. <laughs> that, that's well, the excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, we're lovingly crafting this just for you. <laughs> a, we're not lazy at all. But anyway, once Austin told us sort of how, let's be honest, how low the bar was. <laughs> like if you can just organize just enough, that might be something to do. So anyway, yeah. we'll 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 get more information about that later. But I thought we'd just throw that out there. Sure. Okay. I made a mess of that, by the way. That's going to take a, a lot of work for I you to edit. Hi, Craig. Hello. And I should apologize. Actually, wait, we got to do that again. Because if, yeah, just in case, let me know if it does get too noisy. Okay. And then, because obviously when you're talking, I can cut stuff out. But yeah. Right, so, right, right. Don't worry. It's not too much. I mean, I know that my chair creaks. And what do you do then? Right. So. Okay, I'm sorry. I got to get a better chair. I DW40'd mine and it still will occasionally creak so <laughs> well i mean yeah i mean for a work it's because it's a work chair but you know i used to have a really nice uh you know you know tall back uh, mm -hmm. arm chair with little cushion and uh, you know it's being used in the living room now but <laughs> yeah. i would i would sit down at the i have a like a, a separate desk that i would do all of the stuff in it when i was in the library yeah because the, i got weird sound in the office but now my <laughs> office and the library are the same place so there you go. Okay. All right. 
So about? yeah, we'll do it. Thecla's <laughs> mother and is primarily Severian's uh, mother. He, she is, I think. Well, look, I'm, we're going down. Let's not do that. Um, it's good to turn into a mess. I'll be short in that. Cool. Okay. All right. One, one more in the bag. Good. All right. Let me stop. Here, I got to record one thing real quick. Let me do this. Right. So be quiet. <laughs>